If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. An Elio's original. Looking back at it 40 years ago and what we looked like and how we dress and the makeup and everything, it was amazing. So amazing and so feminist and so rock and roll. The fact that I came out at 14 years old, I had a personal stake in, in you know, trying to make a difference and move things you know, in a better direction. Hi, this is Margaret Cho. You're listening to The Margaret Cho. Today, we have a very special guest. We have Belinda Carlisle. Uh, I am a huge fan, um, of course, from the legendary band The Go-Go's, a solo artist. Um, she's an animal activist. An amazing, an amazing, an amazing singer, and um, yeah, she's joining me from all the way in Bangkok, Thailand, and I'm so excited to have her with me today. You look great. I do. You look so beautiful. How are you so young, literally Belinda Buttons? Well... You know, I don't smoke, I don't drink, I don't do drugs anymore. I um, have a have a daily pranayama and yoga practice. I think that's a lot of it, oxygenating the skin. Mm. And I don't eat meat. I think mm-hmm. I said that. But um, yeah, I mean, you know, just healthy living, everything in yeah. moderation. It's great. Yeah. It's great. I mean, I think that it's really inspiring. But I mean, you always look great. Uh, all throughout all of the different um, all of the different times I've seen you and I've been a fan uh, the first time I saw you was uh, the vacation tour that was the first time I saw you live the vacation tour which I guess would be 1984 is that 80 I think 82 or oh, 83 80, 80 it must have been actually 82 it was the Greek theater in Berkeley um, it was the blasters I that. yeah I remember that yeah that yeah. was such a huge thing. And that show was like such a crazy, amazing experience. I mean, that whole tour was a, 
I mean, it was the the wildest. I mean, was that? Did you guys know what huge stars you were? <laughs> well, I think you know, at the time, you know, from the the well, from the making of that album to you know through 1984, it was a whirlwind. So we we knew we had an idea that you know we were a very popular band and. And um, just by the, the venues and that we would play, we know we had a huge audience. We knew that. But I don't think as far as like enjoying it at the time, I mean, we enjoyed it. But it was just we were running ragged. You know, we were just mm-hmm. we were on the road constantly. And, you know, we loved it. And, and we knew we had something about that time. It started becoming a business, which was a little bit different from the beginning, um, you know. But you know, we it was ninety nine point nine percent of those memories are are uh, are great. Yes, and I really enjoyed the documentary because it really, I mean, it really took me back to a really a great time, which a lot of that footage I had never seen. And um, did it also bring it back for you too? Oh, my God. Well, first of all, the fact that they were able to get that archival footage mm. is really pretty amazing because that's, you know, before the time of, of mobile phones, you know, filming. Right. And, and uh, it was just it, it was amazing that somebody actually I don't know who, what or where it came from, but somebody somebody documented um, a little bit of that that whole time. And it was such an incredible time. Um just energetically and and I mean looking at that footage I thought god we were really cool <laughs> really at the time cool. of, you don't feel like you're that cool of course because you're kids and and whatever I mean we, we but I mean looking at at looking back at it you know 40 years ago and what we looked like and how we dress and the makeup and everything it was amazing amazing yeah so amazing and so feminist and so rock and roll and really fun. And actually, the look holds up. Like, it looks great. Like, if you went out in those outfits today, it would look amazing. Exactly. And they would probably cost, you know, at, le- at least a few hundred dollars. At but least. back then, you know, we, we had no money. So um, everything that we bought was like 75 cents, mm-hmm. you know, $2. Um, because we had no money. So, so, but we were so well put together and you're right. It still holds up to this day. It would, you know, it it would, uh, cost a fortune to dress like that now, but we did it on nothing. I mean, if there was an article of clothing that I was like lusting over, because I was always really into fashion, I would like, I worked as a secretary, um, in the very big, you know, in the early days. So, I would just eat oatmeal for a few weeks and just save my money for like a pair of mod for zone shoes or a manual con sunglasses. So mm-hmm. I was always really into fashion, but most of what I wore was, you know, less than $5 for sure. Mm. It's so fabulous. It's so fabulous. And I mean, yeah. no matter what, everything you were wearing still, even if it was, um, like a, a a garbage bag, it still looked so chic. I mean, I I think it was like, I think I actually did see you wear something like a garbage bag. Like at one point, something it was like a plastic bag, but it was so chic, like with belts and heels. Yeah, belts. 
we, yeah, with belted, you know, I take a big hefty bag, cut the bottom, put my neck through, you know, uh, holes for my arms, belt it with, uh, you know, it was a red belt usually, mm-hmm. and fishnets and a little beret, and I was ready to go. Was that what, yeah, was, was that in an Ugga music war or something? Or <laughs> I think Ugga music war. Well, that dress was like a, it was um, one of those red sort of silk Chinese dresses. Oh, that yes. Used to get- Right. And, you know, it was probably maybe $3 tops because that's all I could afford. But yeah, I mean, I look back at that now. And at the time, I felt, of course, self-conscious because being a young girl, whatever. And I look at it now going, oh, my God, I was so cute. So beautiful. (laughs) Such Such a beauty. And it was so fun, though, because I feel like you gave um the beauty, the school beauty permission to be punk rock. You know, you know. I mean, in, in those early days, I was really a big fan of the whole rockabilly movement that was going on mm-hmm. at the time, too. And that was really super feminine. And so I kind of drew from that sometimes with what I was wearing. A lot of times I would wear sort of a rockabilly prom dress, of course, torn stockings and little stilettos and had the short punk hair. Um but yeah, I mean, it was, it was okay to look feminine and, mm-hmm. um, you know, a lot of it was a lot of looks back then that the, that the women were wearing, you know, was a more, have a, had more of a harder edge, but I always, you know, liked looking feminine. So I just brought that little twist to, to what I, you know, wore and the way I looked. Yeah, I love that. I think that you brought a lot of um, that sort of flirtatious, coy, girlish quality to punk rock, which I think is really a fun thing, which we didn't really have. You could have the very kind of hard um, mohawk thing, but right. or, yeah. you, you know, you, you, you sort of they, they had this thing, you know, if you were punk, you had to be boyish. And right. you were coming out saying, well, you know, you can still be a girl and you can still love punk rock. And I love that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we were, we were all pretty much, I mean, we, we were, you know, we were all feminine actually mm-hmm. at the same time as being feminists um, at the, you know, but feminists and only as we did what we wanted to do and didn't really think about any, um, uh, a gender, you know, mm-hmm. it was it was like anything, you know, we were, it was like anything went, we could do what we wanted. Of course, the industry was run by men, but so what? You know, we were going to succeed anyway. We never let that get in our way. Yeah, yeah. It's great. It's great. I really enjoyed all of your style evolutions all the way through, um, whether it was uh, a concho belt Western shirt <laughs> thing, and then going into um, talk show with well, the talk show with the uh, kind the talk show was sort of kind of a, the sweatshirt with the um, like neckband cut out era flash dance before flash dance yeah yeah that was the first that time was, I'd seen that <laughs> that's yeah, amazing that was that was, uh, that was definitely a look um, you know, I had lots of great looks, but I had lots of really <laughs> scary looks too. And some of that in there with the hair, actually the, the torn sweatshirt thing wasn't so bad, but That's I look at great. some of my outfits and go, oh my God, what was I thinking? You know, there's there's a few stinkers in there. I don't think so. I think they were all great. I mean, I really love, I really love the talk show era. I l- also loved um, 
the I I uh, I get weak uh, era. I like the sort of the French the ch- chanson era too with right. the cat eye um, eyeliner and I mean it was a very chanson kind of period, which I think is uh, also a great style moment for you too. Right. Well, I mean, as I you know after leaving the Go Go's and um, I never really thought so much about my image or whatever. It just, I sort of winged it as I went along, but I always had um, a real sort of love for those glamour, glamour pusses of like, mm-hmm. you know, the forties and fifties. And that was kind of thrown in a lot of the, from that big, the, the heaven album. I mean, yeah, from the he- heaven album, runaway horses. And then of course you say chanson, which I always fancied myself a little bit of a chanson. A chanteuse. Yes. Yes. Um, so, and that was what I did a French album called Voila, because I lived in France for about 25 years. And so I always thought that had a little bit of, uh, I had a little bit of the chanteuse in me. And then, of course, with the album Voila, I sort of looked at Piaf and a lot of those French chanteuses of the time. But I always loved that, that glamorous, you know, that glamorous look, glamorous makeup. Paul Starr did a lot of my makeup back then, mm. and he was a genius. And Peter Savick did a lot of my hair back then, and and um, they got what I was going for. But like I always said, I winged it as I went along, and I was really lucky in that in that way where I was always allowed a hundred percent artistic freedom. Um, with as far as uh, well, most of the time with music, but as far as the image that I wanted to portray. So, and that doesn't happen a lot these days. Yeah, but it was a good time, I think, for you coming out. Uh, I mean, it was a really perfect time to come out of the band and then go into solo recording career and then have um, this great success as a singer and a very strong image to go along with it. And then it was good to like, I mean, I think it was a great way to kind of mature into this like rock star and and yet um have you know like this very mature image to go along with it which i think was really elegant right well you know when i left the band um i had um you know i stopped drinking i you know had this and i I, most most of it was transitioning from a teenager really i looked Mm -hmm. like a teenager when i was in the go-go's to all of a sudden transitioning into a young woman so that that um, right there, I think, was shocking for a lot of people because there was such a visible difference. But it really, I mean, I was 26, 27 years old at the time. So I was a young woman and I started mm-hmm. looking like a young woman. And that was, um, uh, that first album cover was sort of modeled on an old Anne-Margaret um, Photograph. I forgot what it was from, where she was all in black and sitting on a chair. So, mm-hmm. and oh, in chairs, I like to sit down during photo sessions, anyways. I never like to stand up. So that kind of worked for me. And that was like a really, um, at the time, that was such a strong image. And, and still to this day, the hot pink back, background with all in black, um, sort of very styled and shot by Matthew Ralston. Um, but yeah, I mean, with the help of, of a team of photographers and and you know the the artists and stylists it it really projected a uh, a pretty glamorous image yeah and it's just it's wonderful it's like um it's a lot i mean it's a it's a lot of it's a lot of changes that you've gone through and i read your book um 
And it was so amazing too. Like I was um, just so incredibly shocked and moved at the depth that you went into like the all of the stuff in the hotel in London and everything. I mean, it was just really deep and dark and because I'm I'm Sobs also. So it was yeah. like a very intense journey and I'm I mean it's it's an amazing it's an amazing book and I, I really think um and I mean I, I mean what a what a rock memoir but also what an intense experience to go through. Um what right. did what did you feel like when you were doing when you were doing did you want to just like get it all out there and Well, I always thought that I had a book in me because mm-hmm. I've had this extraordinary life. But I always felt that it had to have some sort of um, angle on it. And um, I needed a little bit of time. Well, going back to when I was um, dropped by my record company at 40, I mean, I had always been defined by what I what I did. And now I never mm-hmm. really dug deep. So digging deep and that actually from the age 40 to present has been the most interesting time of my life. So um about three years into my sobriety, I thought that I was ready and I could write a book that was not just uh, a memoir and a little bit of dirty laundry, of course, because people like that, a little bit of titillation. Mm-hmm. The theme being, in a nutshell, that you can teach an old dog new tricks. Mm-hmm. And I had been, you know, an addict for since I was age 17, really, mm-hmm. um, until 47 when I got when I got sober, I'm 62 now. I, you know, I had dabbled with sobriety, like I said, when I left the band, but I didn't do the work. And I, it was my idea of sobriety, which was, I can't, you know, I can't do Coke, but I can take pills and smoke pot and drink white wine. (laughs) And that was my, you know, that was my, um, my version. And of course, it's a slippery slope, as you know, you know, it's a slippery slope. So I, at, you know, when I had a three-day, four-day bender in London at the very, after 30 years of drinking and using, pretty much, you know, with the exception of when I wasn't pregnant, I, you know, hit a spiritual bottom. So when I was writing the book, I wanted to, um, you know, tell my story, but also tell the story of fighting demons, my demons, my personal demons, and being able to win that battle, which I struggled with for for 30 years. So um, I didn't, it was a really, really hard process. I, for me, you know, I've been through therapy, and I've been through the 12-step program. And, you know, personal inventory and all that stuff is really, really hard work. I always said it was like, you know, putting cement in your boots and wading through quicksand in the fog. That's what it's like for me, trying to yeah. dig it up, yeah, trying yeah. to like excavate it, all the of course. feelings, I, I, you know, and writing that book, a lot of realizations came up that I, you know, that didn't come up in therapy and didn't come up when I was doing personal inventory in my 12-step program. So it was a really hardcore process for me and a really emotional thing, a process and I don't think I'll ever do it again. <laughs> well, I think because, that was a, it was a, it was so deep. I mean, it it was a deep, deep it was a deep journey. And also, from as a fan, to never have known because you would never assume because your life looks so perfect from the outside, right. nobody would ever have known. 
you know? No, I mean, I did a pretty good job of hiding things yeah. until, until the end when it was just obvious that there was a gigantic problem. But my whole, a lot of my life has been about, you know, keeping, hiding, hiding and, and secrets and, and um, it's a horrible, horrible way to live. And I did a lot of my living my life in that sort of um, vortex of secrets and lies and stuff. So, so um, yeah, it was, it was an, an intense project and intense process. But I think that, you know, the feedback that I've gotten from that book through the years you know, they use it sometimes and, you know, and rehabs. As, yeah, they should, as, they should. It's like a, is like an inspirational story of like, yeah, you know, you might be 47 years old, but you can still turn it around. And, and absolutely. And I did. Yeah. And I did. And yeah. it was, it was, I think, you know, they, everybody says, was it, was it really hard for you? And no, it wasn't actually. I think once I decided I can't do this anymore, that was it. I know I, I, made a, as I was in my, my last binge, I was, you know, chopping out lines, sitting in by myself for three days in a hotel room, by the way. And then, you know, I had an auditory hallucination, um, that said, okay, you're going to die. And I said, okay, I, I'll stop. I promise, but just let me finish what I have. Mm -hmm. And then, and then I'll do it. And actually after that, that was it. And I think for me, the most difficult part was um, getting used to uh, living in serenity and having, mm -hmm. and as I was all, I was not only addicted to alcohol and, and had a, you know, mostly cocaine, but I also was addicted to drama. And mm -hmm. that was, that was the hardest part for me is learning to live and enjoy uh, a life of serenity, mm -hmm. you know, and no drama. Yeah. And I, I prefer it that way. Yeah. I know peace is something that um, it's it's different. I mean, it's definitely something that I have to learn how to be comfortable with. Peace is certainly yep. something new for me too. Oh, I used to sit in meetings and go, "Serenity, it's boring." I mean, you know, it's it's it's. I don't, you know, I don't know if I want serenity. I like it when it's all stirred up <laughs> and there's chaos around me. But yeah. um, they would just say, you know, just. Just you'll get used to it, and actually, I it, I did it. It took a couple of years mm -hmm. to get used to it, and I wouldn't have it any other way now. You know? Yeah, yeah. I used to say I can't imagine a day without a drug or without a drink, and now I can't imagine a day with one. So right, um, it's just you know, as you know, it's like it's a process, and in the beginning, the early days of sobriety for me we're just different. It wasn't hard staying away from it, from, you know, my, my drugs and drink of choice, but it was just learning to do things. And I'll never forget about three years into my sobriety. I was the last one to leave a party at like two thirty in the morning and I was sober and I was like, wow, this is amazing. You know, I never thought I could do that. Yeah. I mean, it's really amazing to find the innocence of just people and conversation and, music and movies and food and just these like really basic pleasures that I always thought that I needed to be high for or something. Exactly. exactly. You know? Yeah. It's, um, and to be present, you know, it was, it's funny because I, when I first got sober and, and, um, 
I had always gone on stage after, you know, after a couple of drinks, you know, cause I, when I really think about what I do for a living, it's kind of, I used to be a ham, but I'm not a, so much of a ham anymore. And, and I, but if I really think about what I do, I would like get freaked out. Like I'm actually, you know, in front of people doing something and all the eyes are on me. Mm-hmm. So when I got sober, I thought, how am I, I can't go on stage without a drink. I don't know if I'm ever going to be able to go on stage without a drink or, or something. And I thought it was going to be really difficult, but actually I think it's a lot easier now because it's always about connecting to something bigger than yourself. I don't know if you feel the same way. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's way easier. I mean, it's way easier to perform. I mean, it's just also physically easier to tour. It's physically easier to do all of the things because it's rigorous to, to actually like travel and tour. I mean, not, obviously not right now because of COVID and everything, but usually when you're a touring artist, it's strenuous. So yes, it is. it's actually physically very hard, but just as a performer, it's really important to be present to connect to an audience. And, um, you know, it's, it's hard to do that when you're altered. Absolutely. And I always thought that I was, you know, great and sort of like, oh, Lucy, you know, Lucy on say, Lucy Goosey. And then, but I would look back and I'm like horrified, you know, and I would go on stage completely smashed and, you know, think I'm funny and crock jokes. And I think it's kind of funny and kind of funny, but not really. And now it's like, you know, it's, it's, a, you know, as, as you know, it's a, it's an energy exchange with the audience mm-hmm. and you know with that buffer of like being loaded, it's like removed and it's like, you can connect more and, and it's so much more enjoyable and, and so much more comfortable. Yes, you're so right. I mean, I just, I get really invested in the myth of artists that I like, like Serge Gainsbourg or, you know, somebody who's like in a couple of cognac bottles in already and they're like super or wasted or like Edith Piaf is a good example of that you know just oh yeah super like already in in too deep you know or Janis Joplin all the people that I really like love to get wasted before and I think you know it, it's just that I idolize the myth of people like that but oh, there's yeah. just it's you know yeah it's romantic there's a romance to this sort of elegantly wasted, you know, mm-hmm. artist. You know, mm-hmm. and, and it is cool. I mean, I just actually on Instagram, I just put up a picture of Serge Gainsbourg yesterday because I just think, you know, and I still think he's the, he's the coolest. But yeah, yeah there's, a, you know, the, the tortured artist thing, which I never considered myself to be, but I certainly appreciated it in others. And yeah. I always thought that was the coolest, you know, Keith Richard, who's like the ultimate is so like the cool. king of that. Yeah. But <laughs> yeah. Serge would have been so great if he, what if he had gotten sober and lived, you know, what if he had gotten to live? That would have been so great. You know? Yeah. yeah. You know, I have, I was, I remember that last, um, I met him actually. In, wow. In San Remo um, music festival I didn't really appreciate him at the time. I just thought he was like a dirty man. But, <laughs> but you know, he was working with Vanessa Paradis at the time. And wow. I was like, we have to get her away from that dirty old man. But then <laughs> doing um, research and, and, and living in France and like, oh, my God, what was I thinking? He's like, you know, not always politically correct, but that's what's so great. Yeah. You know, and, and, and um, 
I just like love his interviews and I just, I, I don't know. I'm a huge fan of his, but yeah, I mean, I always loved that. There's a romance in that kind of character. Yeah, there is. And I mean, it, it is like, I mean, you know, the, there is a potential. I think what I love is that also that there's an unrealized potential there too. Yeah. And, um, you know, maybe it, that's what I also love. Like, and, you know, it's kind of like they took their talent for granted a little bit, you know, that's like right. they had so much talent that they could waste it all just by being fucked up. I know. I know. Well, I, you know, he died fairly young, so he could have he could have given us more. Absolutely. I love his later stuff. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's there, there's a lot of, you know, artists still around like that have that that uh that thing you know and and without naming names that i just really respond to because they're kind of a mess yeah you can and you you know you can see that it's like oh my god but it's but their art and they're real and their their authenticity it's like you know it's it's just amazing yeah i mean it's just it's just like that mystery but it's like i just i can't do it and i'm too I'm 51. And so it's like, and I don't have a lot of chances to do it. And I've already spent all mine. It's like all of my, my, my lives are, are good. I don't, I have this little dog to take care of. I don't have, I don't have, do you have an animal? You have an animal foundation in Kolkata. Yes, I do. Yeah. I, and you know, and I always wanted to have a donkey sanctuary and I've always been um, an animal rights advocate for like 30 years. I'm, Peta and whatever. So um, some really good friends of mine from Seattle founded the first animal hospital in uh, or an animal sanctuary in India. And I went to go visit them because I have been to India numerous times. And I this is what I want to do one day. This is exactly what I want to do. So I have some friends who work for NGOs in, in Calcutta and they come for long weekends to Bangkok because I live in Bangkok. And um, one of them, Paul, said, I really want to do an animal hospital. And I thought, oh, my God, I want to do that, too. So we formed. We didn't really know what we were going to do. But there's such a big need for um, animal um, uh, services in, 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 in that area in Bengal. Mm-hmm. So we formed Animal People Alliance in 2014. Um, basically, we do on-site treatment. There's lots of animals that live on the street. Uh, We had a shelter for a while, but it worked better. We could get more done by going to the animal itself without stressing somewhat um, uh, a dog or a cat that's used to living on the street because they like it. They Mm -hmm. sound like they're they're homeless. They love it. So, you know, we go around the city, uh, Bahala region of Calcutta, and we've treated over like 17,000 animals since 2014. Oh, wow. And we just expanded to Chiang Rai, Thailand, and we have a shelter up there. And um, up there, we do more of adoption and education. So it's it's like my little baby. And, yeah. and so I don't have any dogs or cats with me here, but I have plenty yes. <laughs> up north. Aww. I have like 40 of them. That's so, incredible. I know it's amazing, and I—it's kind of found its its feet. We've we've um, we're really well known in the, in Calcutta, and and uh, 
I go whenever I can because it's only a two-hour flight for me. So mm-hmm. I'm kind of back and forth and the team are amazing. And it's actually kind of twofold because what we do is we hire people who are at um, – or, you know, vulnerable people like trafficked. We have a few women who have been trafficked. We train them to be uh, dog handlers and, and paravets mm-hmm. and, or people who are at risk of falling below the, the line of poverty. Yeah. So it's like a twofold creating employment for people. And in, the, in Thailand, we work mostly with stateless people and stateless people have a problem doing anything in life because they have no papers and they, yeah. want, they can't get papers. So, because they're kind of caught up in, I know it's a whole other story, but but they live this kind of life where, you know, it's just they're just uh, you know can't get work, have no ID, mm-hmm. you know, can't function in normal society. So uh, up north, or there, we work with the stateless tribes. So it's 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 um it's a real um it's my baby. Yeah, it's my baby. Well, that is so incredible. Where, where can people find out information on um, that on Instagram or Facebook or where where are they at? Well, we have a Animal People Alliance on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and then our website is animalpeoplealliance.net. And so, uh, where can people find out about you on the um, internets, on the... I have, you know, I do have a Facebook page that I can't access that my manager does because I, I quit Facebook for, um, a couple of years ago, but I'm on there, the mm-hmm. official, and but I'm, I'm active mostly on Instagram, mm-hmm. um, where I'm active sometimes, but I, you know, I find, I, I think Instagram is the best place and that would be travels with Mrs. Mason. Okay. So you know, but, but on my Facebook page, that's, that's more professional stuff. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm real active on Instagram cause I love it. And it's like a photo album for me. Yeah. I don't get all out and, you know, by the negativity, there's not a lot of negativity on there occasionally, but Twitter and the rest of them, I'm like, Oh, you know, yeah. Uh-uh. It's a lot of shit. Oh God. Yeah. So much shit. Well, yeah. I hope that we get to see each other. I saw you at Christmas at, um, Cindy, Cindy Lopper's thing, but I hope I get to see you after this whole mess is all over, but we'll see each other soon. I hope. Absolutely. I'm in next year when the Go-Go's have a few dates in LA, um, they moved it from this year to next year. So you definitely will be my guest. I will love that. I can't wait to see you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Belinda. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's so nice to see you and talk to you. So nice to see you. Thank you. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities.
abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. And now, we're going to talk to Belinda's son, James Duke Mason. He's an amazing guy. He's a political guy. He's a young politician. He's a young political maverick guy. Actually, maverick has sort of negative connotations, but I like it. I like it. I'm going to bring it back. I'm going to take it from Sarah Palin, and I'm going to give it to James Duke Mason. <laughs> He's way better, more deserving. Hi, James. Such an honor <laughs> to be here. Seriously, I'm so thrilled. I'm so glad you're here. This is great. Um we uh, are at the end of our summer, which has not really, really been a normal summer. Are you sheltering in place in Los Angeles? I am, actually. I'm, I'm sheltered in place in West Hollywood. And uh, the only place I've been, uh, other than L.A., since March is I've gone to Palm Springs a couple times. But that's about it, you know. Oh, Okay. <laughs> Um, but yeah, it's been a strange summer. It hasn't really felt like summer very much. Um, it hasn't. I know it's weird, and it's weird that it's actually kind of over. Yeah. Um, it's very strange for me because you, for me, like summer is really like I usually spend most of my summer in Provincetown. So this is the first year I haven't been to Provincetown in in many years. Do you usually spend your summer? Uh, uh, out of town or in LA? Well, you know, this summer in particular was going to be very eventful because uh, my mom, Belinda Carlisle from the Go-Go's, um, you know, the Go-Go's had shows on the East Coast in New York, and my mom actually had mm -hmm. some shows in New York, both solo and with a band. So we had so many big plans for the summer. And then, of course, everything got completely, you know, ruined. So you know, what can you do? Yeah. But Provincetown, uh, I, I was actually planning to go spend some time since I was going to be on the East Coast anyway, in both Fire Island and perhaps um, Provincetown as well. But of course, that got completely ruined as well. So, Oh, no. Have you spent um, summers in Provincetown before? Have you been there in the summer? I haven't. That's the thing. I'm actually I'm a, I'm a self-proclaimed West Coast gay. So, um, oh. so I've been in Palm Springs, gone to, usually go to Palm Springs. I go to, um, you know, Laguna Beach, San Francisco, but I, and of course I've been to New York. I just haven't spent any time in the Pines or in, um, in Provincetown. So that was next on my to-do list. Well, the Pines and Cherry Grove, it's all, it's all like kind of, it's interesting about how you're really defined on where you summer <laughs> as uh, your queerness is really defined by where you go. That's true. And it used to be, yeah, it used to be like the sort of trashy gays and the lesbians would go to Cherry Grove <laughs> and then the um, high, high mon the big money gays and the daddies would go to the Pines. <laughs> <laughs> and then the... Um, the sort the drag queens and also the fans of drag queens would go and the bears would go to Provincetown. <laughs> and now it's all kind of mixed, but yeah. everything's all sort of changed because uh, now everybody hangs out together mostly. Well, I know they have different weekends too, right? So like Provincetown, you'll have True. bear weekend, you'll have carnival, I guess, which is like the sort of the big everyone in one place at one time. That's yeah, that's where everybody does drugs. Oh, I see. So okay. everybody goes to carnival to do drugs. And then also you don't bear week is also fun because that's the best food. Mm. Um, but also all the toilets get blocked. <laughs> <laughs> so you have to be careful. 
You have to really be careful during Bear Week. Because everybody's because so, the plumbing is not the plumbing is not what it was. <laughs> They're not prepared for the uh, for the amount of you know. It's a busy weekend, but the food is the best. It's really delicious and it's really fun. I mean, but I I love uh, Provincetown. I mean, I think the whole summer is great. And all of the shows, it's really quite amazing. It's similar to now. um, I think it would be similar to going to the Fringe Festival in Edinburgh. If you like comedy, Mm -hmm. because it's quite amazing. Because in uh, Provincetown now, everybody has a show. And everybody you've seen on Drag Race... um, all of the wonderful queens that yep. have been on that show now have a show in Provincetown, or they did. And the the best, too, uh, even queens who don't have shows on, uh, or who haven't appeared on Drag Race, people like Dina Martina, who are amazing, or, or Jackie Beat, mm-hmm. or, you know, people, uh, Varla, who, people who are so, so amazing also are on, on, um, on every night. Mm-hmm. So it's a real treat. Well, hopefully next summer things will be you know, getting back to normal. I mean, we'll see. But at first it was like, okay, well, by the end of the year, you know, we'll be able to start doing, you know, doing things again. And now it looks like it could be next summer if we're lucky, you know, next spring or summer. I know. It's almost like we don't even know. But it's kind of like what I think what's been great is is that being uh, like this has made me really appreciate all of the uh, entertainment that we have been able to see, you know, because it's so easy to take it for granted when it's out there all the time. Absolutely. Well, I mean, absolutely. (laughs) No, no, no question. I mean, the things that we all thought were sort of a given that no matter how bad things got, we had, you know, we could see our friends, we could go to, you know, a bar and have drinks or whatever, you know, uh, those things that sort of used to give us comfort are the very things that we're not able to do. Um, and those were the things that gave us, you know, sort of a respite from reality. But now, you know, we're all sort of uh, stuck where we're at. Yes. I mean, when I was, before I was able to go to bars, I used to really dream about the um, idyllic importance of gay bars and the idyllic importance of drag and, and how much I wanted to go and how much I couldn't wait to grow up to go. Mm-hmm. And and then as soon as I started going, then I became annoyed with it and then I took it for granted right away. And now I can't wait to go back. <laughs> <laughs> Me neither. Me neither. I mean, you know, where I live in West Hollywood, you know, we have a few places that have reopened. Like, for instance, the Abbey is back open. But unlike before, you know, it's a it's mainly a restaurant. You can, you can drink, but you have to order food. You have to stay at your table. You can only get up to go to the bathroom and you have to put your mask on. So, you know, at least there are a few places where, you know, there's some semblance of normalcy, but it's obviously still very different than the way things were. And the Abbey is important, though. It'd be, I mean, and also what's good about the Abbey is it's mostly outside. So there's something about that that's kind of like, okay, well, that actually there's a sense of like, okay, well, this has always been this way. So it, it seems like, and there's something, there's an established quality about the Abbey where if the Abbey's open, there's going to be a sense of like, okay, everything's going to start to feel like it's going to be okay. Absolutely. No, totally. You, and know. It, you know, and I mean, that's, it, it, it really is, aside from being a bar, it really is sort of a community center, you know, and, uh, you know, it's a place where people go to feel like they're in this in the scene, in the community, you know, sort of the epicenter of the L.A., you know, gay universe. So, you know, at least for and me. And politics, for me. too. Politics, for sure. And politics is something that you've been involved with uh-huh. since ever since I have been hearing about you 
you know, ever since I've been knowing about you, even since you were a child, have been involved and thinking about politics. You mm-hmm. know, been a very politicized kid Absolutely. and young man. What what got you involved and interested in politics? What got you interested in the first place? Well, it was a really weird journey for me because initially um, my first political sort of consciousness was when I, my dad, who worked in the Reagan administration, actually um, told me about you know his years working in the White House. He worked at the State Department and he also worked as a special assistant to the president. And this was the early 80s. So, you know, as a kid, he'd show me his, you know, White House memorabilia and stuff he had and photos. But then I also grew up sort of at the height of the, you know, the Bush-Iraq War sort of era where, you know, literally at 11 years old, my mom was taking me to see Fahrenheit 9-11. And uh, mm. so, you know, I had mm. I had my mom's political point of view, you know, and, and so I was very rapidly sort of anti-war, anti-Bush, but my initial exposure was through my dad. So I had this interesting sort of mix. And then the fact that I came out at 14 years old, that sort of gave it an even more personal sort of, uh, you know, uh, I felt like I was, I had a personal stake in, in, you know, trying to make a difference and move things, uh, you know, in a better direction. So that's sort of what motivated me um, to get involved. So and then, you know, when I was a teenager, I worked on uh, as a volunteer on Hillary's campaign in 08. I was a page in Congress when I was 16. And then right before I turned 18, I started writing for um, Frontiers in LA, which is, you know, now defunct um, LGBTQ uh, publication. But, um, but yeah, and then so that so as soon as I turned 18, I was like, ready to hit the ground running. Yeah, that's fantastic. I mean, what a great, what a great thing. And then now, you know, it's so important, because I think that young people are really going to make such a difference in what we're going to see in this coming election and how we're going to look towards, you know, this rebuild of what the, you know, where we're at now. I mean, we really do need a change and we do need uh, the country to sort of come back from this terrible situation we're in. Oh, yeah. No, I, it's really awful. I, I get so annoyed when I see people making, you know, nitpicky sort of comments about Biden on social media. He wasn't my first choice. He wasn't even my second or third choice. But, you know, this is no longer about, you know, what did Joe, but what, what bill did Joe Biden vote on in 1986 that, you know, he voted yes on a corporate tax in, uh, decrease or whatever. You know, this is way beyond that. This is like, existential, you know, level that we're on now, like the minute that Joe Biden takes office, I say, have at it, you know, people can, you know, pressure, push, criticize, you know, try to push them in a more progressive direction. Like, I'm all for that. But right now, we don't have the luxury of, um, of, it's either like someone who you disagree with on some issues, or literally like, pure evil, you know, I know we cannot, I mean, we just cannot afford to nitpick and we cannot afford to divide any further. I mean, there's just no way. And I'm thrilled about Kamala Harris. I think she is amazing. I would have picked her for president. So this is, she's actually was my idea for president. She Mm -hmm. was my candidate anyway. So this is great. This is the next best thing. I'm perfectly happy with this ticket. Mm -hmm. I'm doing everything that I can to make sure that this this administration happens. Because Trump Trump can still win. That's the problem. People think, oh, 
oh, you know, there's no way. Yes, there is a way because he'll cheat. He will dismantle the post office. He will do whatever he can to make sure that he stays in office. And it's really scary. Well, I mean, that's that's the thing is like he's already thinking ahead to if he does lose you know how he can just delegitimize the process, the the result as much as possible. But pe- that, but that's even like getting ahead of ourselves. Like there is still, as you said, a very good chance that he may just win this election outright. And the the mm-hmm. fact that you know I was in in June, especially May June, people were like, oh, you know, he's ten- the polls show he's ten points behind. I'm like, I guarantee you, there's no way in hell it's going to be probably anywhere close to that margin. It's probably going to be. Even if Biden wins, it's probably going to be pretty narrow. And sure enough, the polls are now showing that it ha- it has narrowed significantly and that in some of the big swing states, Trump is, you know, tied, if not ahead. So there's there's every chance he may win this um, outright. So people like, you know, unfortunately, I think where you would think after last time people would would, you know, be over that way of thinking. But we still have a lot of people that have their head in the clouds, I think, you know. Yeah, I mean, I think that there are people that are just um, that 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 are part in in general. Democrats have often been um, very uh, unrealistically idealistic, and also a lot, there's a lot of infighting within each other. There's a lot of imperfections within the Democratic Party that I know to be true. That there's a lot of idealism that's unrealistic. That there's a lot of infighting. That there's a lot of um, inability to, I think, accept reality. Mm-hmm. And also a lot of, um, I don't know, there's a lot of negligence too. There's a lot of things like everybody else will take care of it, that I don't have to deal with it. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> oh, totally. Totally. I mean, whether it was the 2000 election or 2016 or even this one, a lot of people saying, you know, Oh, out of principle, you know, I'm not going to vote, you know, for whether it was Gore or Hillary or Biden. The thing is, like, we don't have that luxury right now. You know, it's like the Republicans will say, mm-hmm. we'll nominate a rapist or a, uh, you know, child molester like Roy Moore. And that's, mm-hmm. and that's okay as long as he votes our way on abortion and whatever else. But oh, with Biden, he made one bad vote in 1986. That that makes him unelectable, or un- I can't vote for him. You know? Yeah, yeah. There, there's like these these things that people are. Um, they're like deal breakers. They're like, I'm not going to do that because of this. And it's just, it's really Republicans are much more willing to um, consciously make these decisions. Um, in order, they're like, they'll go with the things that are sort of the lesser evils, you know, because they're more realistic about their goals. Yep. And it's very much like, I think that our party is really, we're really, um, we dismantle ourselves with our idealism. And it's really unfortunate because I know that we actually have a better, we have a better society in mind. We have a higher mind and we have a higher purpose for ourselves. And we do have, I think, you know, I think we just are better people at <laughs> at heart <laughs> but it's hard it's hard well that's why you know like they, they pointed out as was pointed out a couple of days ago they didn't even have a republican platform for this election they literally just said oh it's literally just we support trump you know um there's mm-hmm. they, they've let go of any sort of pretenses that they even have a real uh, agenda other than we support trump you know and the thing about biden too is as the point i make to people who are not happy or skeptical Yes, he made a few bad votes over the over 40 years, but 
this guy passed the first climate change bill in the 80s, uh, wrote the Violence Against Women Act, wrote, um, you know, the or Brady Bill or helped pass the, the gun control bill in the 90s, helped pass gay marriage, helped pass Dodd-Frank, helped pass Obamacare. So he's actually done a lot of really big progressive things. Um, you know, and for me, like, I'd rather have somebody who's effective and who can actually get things done, who may have made a few mistakes over, you know, half a century, but who still has, you know, overall done a pretty good effective job. So... I'm actually, I'm, pre- I'm pre- yeah. as you said, I'm pretty happy with Biden Harris as far as I'm. Concerned. I am. I'm pretty happy, and I'm. I'm just happy with somebody who's actually had a political career and knows how to be a politician and knows how to uh, tell the truth at least ninety nine percent of the time, as opposed to none of the time. I mean, <laughs> it's like. The- I, I, you know, I, I wish that somebody had been in office that could have prepared for this pandemic, who could have honestly took control of this situation in a way that a a human being that was, you know, compassionate about people's health, you know, like this is like, it's a crazy situation that we have. We could have taken care of this. We yep. could have dealt with this properly. Absolutely. You know, that didn't have to turn into what it's turned into no it didn't it really didn't and uh that's why it's it is absolutely true and like literally when we say it's a life and death election it's 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 all about it's all about ego and uh you know it's i mean this convention has just been a total like parallel universe where you know and, and it's so sickening how they turn everything on its head where you know they say things like you know, to save our democracy and to preserve the union, you know, we must vote for Trump. And it's like, but wait a second, these are the people who literally are dismantling our institutions and trying to gerrymander and suppress the vote. I mean, it's just so sickening how they, 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 they totally perverse or, you know, whatever the correct term is, they make, they pervert every, everything to sort of suit their own uh, interests. It's horrifying. Yeah. It's horrifying, but it's also interesting that in every arena of corruption, there is something there. This this administration have some hand in it, you know, whether it's, um, you know, sexual deviancy, whether it's Epstein, whether it's money laundering, whether it's cheating in elections, whether, you know, it's every arena of corruption. You will find some hand of this administration there, yet. For some reason, there's no, you know, there's no retribution there. And I wonder why that 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 continues to exist, even within the um, structure that we have a kind of society now that we witness everything. We see everything. We have social media that exists where we see it all. Yet nothing happens around it. So I wonder where the payback is because either it's coming or it's not coming. I don't know what it means. You know, I don't, unfortunately, I have a feeling that it may never come because I mean, there are just so many mm-hmm. things like the fact I remember the story from a few weeks ago about how Trump had the British ambassador or the U.S. ambassador to Britain. Uh, you know, lobby to have the British uh, open at Trump's uh, resort or, you know, golf, uh, golf course in Turnbury. And it's like, I mean, that right there would be under any any other presidency, sort of like a defining scandal 
you know, but because there's just every day, like uh, 10 of those, you know, it's just impossible. So my, I mean, my, my guess is that if Biden's elected, you know, we're just going to be like as, as eager to move on as possible. And I, <laughs> and so unfortunately, I just my guess is that at least for most of it, there probably won't be any payback or accountability, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, I guess it's interesting. Like, what is the lesson that we're here to learn? I always think that there's got to be like some lesson to be learned or and I always like wonder what is everything like to represent? Like, I always like wonder, like, what does this even mean? Like the appearance of Kanye West and all of this, like what is his appearance like in this have to do with anything? It's very strange. Like this is a very odd appearance of like mashup of um, the sort of like pop culture part of it that doesn't really make any sense, but it does completely too, because um this is also part of the reality television segment of it. I mean, is this all some sort of thing that will make sense? Is this all going to be a TV show that will appear later <laughs> that we're all part of? Well, as, you know? uh, as Elon Musk says, he's like, there's more than a 50% chance that we're all living in a simulation and that this is some kind of like, you know, who knows? Maybe they're screwing, whoever they are, maybe they're screwing with us, you know, the aliens or right. whoever else, you know? <laughs> Like, I think we're all in some sort of giant um, in simulation. We're all in like some giant sort of reality show, like Love Island Dream, <laughs> like Big Brother House. This is like this entire universe is like a Big Brother House that we're all going to get kicked out of or something. One day we're going to wait. It's like the Matrix or something. We're going to wake up and be like, oh, it was all it was all like a big, a big <laughs> reality show. Like you said, you know, I know. I know. Well, I hope so. I mean, you know, what what do you think it's like? I think the the first thing that I will be excited about is that if he gets out of office, this is like that would be the best. The the other thing is getting out of quarantine. That'll be the next thing. What will you like to do when you get out of quarantine? Um, <laughs> well, I think I would like to go to a gay bar. Absolutely, that's definitely on my on the top of my list. Um, I mean, you know, I actually, you know, I'm I'm going through kind of a weird thing right now because. You know, my parents live in Thailand, in Bangkok, and we're trying to figure out if and when I can potentially go over there. But, you know, right now, uh, there's a two-week quarantine requirement. And even on top of that, you have to have, like, a medical visa and, you know, uh, all sorts of, like, you know, it's a really difficult process to get over there. So I would say seeing my parents is definitely at the top of my priorities. Oh, yes. Yeah. That's hard. Yeah. That's hard. I feel like I've just seen your mother because I've been watching the um, documentary, which is right, great. Right. Um, yeah, it's so great. And uh, so I, I, and I saw her at Christmas, but I, I just, um, it's so, it's so funny because it's like, uh, you know, she seems very nearby. She also seems very California, but of course she's very international. Well, you know, she's she's definitely always been a California girl at heart. She always says you can. Uh, you can take the girl out of California. No, yeah. You can take the girl out of California, but you can't take the California out of the girl. So, mm-hmm. you know, so, and, and you know, the thing is they always usually come back to visit. I mean, that was the plan. They were going to come here in May, I think. And then she, they were, we were all going to go to the East coast for the shows in June, July. And then of course every, so normally I would see them at least every three or four months, but now who knows when the next time will be, you know? But wow. thank God for so do they, they live in Bangkok? Oh, I know. They, right. they do. Yeah, they live in Bangkok. They moved there about 
four years ago, and uh, they have a good friend who who lives lives there, and they went to visit uh, him about five or six years ago, and they fell in love with it. And you know, they were kind of looking for a new adventure, a new place to go, and they decided to literally just pick up and and leave and move to Thailand. <laughs> That's incredible. I love Bangkok too. I mean, but you grew up in France, isn't that right? I did. So I was a really weird kid because I was born here, but then when I was two, we moved to France, and I lived in France for most of the for most of the sixteen years. Spent three years of it in uh, in London, but most, by and large. Until I was 18, uh, I lived in Europe and in, in France. And, and mm-hmm. so I was an American gay political dork, you know, teenager yeah. living in France. So I was a total like fish out of water, you know. Yes. But then I, I, as soon as I turned 18, I moved back. I moved back to L.A. and, you know, dove right into politics. And, you know, I was I was 22 when I first ran for West Hollywood City Council um, worked on the Obama campaign when I in 2012. Worked on Hillary's campaign in 2016. Um, ran for city council again in WeHo last year, and though I didn't win, mm-hmm. I you know I, I did. I would like, if I may say so myself, I think I did fairly respectably. And um, yes. you know, and, and now I'm writing political articles for a bunch of different websites, and um, mm-hmm. you know, I have my as you, and as you know, you've been a guest. I have my yes. weekly Duke's downloads that I do. So you know, I'm. Um, you know, I've uh, sort of organically, you know, created this sort of, you know, little uh, profile for myself that it has, you know, helped me or made made me feel like I'm making a bit of a difference, you know, in some way. Yes, that's wonderful. And and what office do you have your eye on? What do you think that um, you would like to do politically? I mean, what um, what sort of political career do you think would be good? I mean, are you thinking of like that sort of Newsom track or <laughs> a beyond? I mean, I think he's got a good political career, by the way. Oh yeah, no, I lo- I love Gavin Newsom. He's he's incredible. he's quite he's quite good. He's really yeah. good. Yeah, and I mean, I, I think it's amazing actually how we have two of the like leading Democrats in America, both Newsom and Harris, who both happen to be from California. And, yes. and by the way, how I, this, I, this came to my mind the other day that if Biden wins, we're going to have two women from California up on the dais, like standing with him during the state of the union, both Pelosi oh, yes. and Harris. That's great. Which is pretty That's amazing. Great. But yeah. Um, I doubt I'll run for WeHo City Council again. I'll probably wait a while and focus on my writing and on my, you know, sort mm-hmm. of, um, you know, I'm working towards maybe doing some commentary type stuff on, you know, on TV. Uh, that's that's sort of what I have in mind at the moment. But down the line, I could definitely see myself running for uh, maybe state assembly or, you know, even maybe one day for Congress. Um, it really, I mean, it depends mm-hmm. on, on a lot of things. Who knows if we'll even have a democracy come, you know, a year or two from now, honestly, it's I think mm-hmm. it's the first time in my life where I really can't see past the next, you know, four or five months because a lot hinges on right. this election. If, if, if Trump wins again, who knows what the world's going to look like, you know? Yeah. So, yeah, I'm just focused on the next three or four months and uh, just trying to hoping and praying that once Biden wins, we can all sort of get back to to normal to some extent. Right, right. Right. We just have to think about, I mean, just definitely, are, are you going to be working on um, different things for him? I'm going to be doing some things with Michelle Kwan for the um, oh, yeah. 
Biden-Harris campaign, for sure. Oh, yeah. So um, oh, yeah. definitely doing stuff for that. It's so interesting with uh, with this quarantine thing, because obviously, like, you know, under uh, under normal circumstances, like in previous elections, I actually was an official surrogate for, like, Hillary's campaign, the Obama campaign. So they literally flew me to... You know, I went to Michigan, I went to Florida, I went to North Dakota, and I would speak at like gay pride events, you know, the parades and Mm. the marches and actually, you know, speak on behalf of the campaign. But a lot of that kind of on the ground um, advocacy and surrogacy, uh, you know, is not really happening, obviously, at the moment. So Mm -hmm. it's just the the question is like, um, other than, you know, maybe co-hosting fundraisers or writing articles or uh, posting on social media. It's like, what what is there to do? You know, along with making calls, I guess, and phone banking and all that kind of stuff. But it's a, it's a lot harder to, to, to support these candidates uh, than it would be under normal circumstances, you know? Yes. But maybe with, with um, zoom and, and things like that, um, you know, with Skype and zoom and, and, FaceTime and and all of these things that we have, maybe the reach is even farther. We we don't really even know, you know. So I think that the um, the way that we can reach each other through this kind of stuff, um, you know, through, through just I think is is interesting. So you know, we don't have what we had four years ago no. um, in terms of the reach we have through the internet. So it's like pretty amazing what we can do now electronically um, that we didn't have in the last election. That's very so. True. It's definitely um, improved. So maybe um, maybe we'll even reach more people this way. Um, yeah. So, you know, well, and, there's something to be optimistic about. No, ab- absolutely. And in fact, um, I find it really interesting that uh, according to the Biden campaign, their fundraising has actually been, you know, even better, I think, than it, than it was during, you know, the, before the, the pandemic in terms of like the amount of money they were able to raise from virtual fundraisers. I mean, I, I, I couldn't believe when I saw the amount of money that they raised from, you know, doing virtual zoom <laughs> events, because, you know, normally you think, oh, people would, you know, wouldn't perhaps not be as likely to give if they can't actually see the candidate in person. But I guess, mm-hmm. um, you know, I guess people are just really passionate and, uh, you know, they're willing to give irregardless. So um, that's a really good sign that people are just so and I think you're right that Zoom means that you hopefully can actually reach more people because the people people don't have to be in you know a certain city in order to attend uh, attend a fundraiser. Yes, yeah. and we also have a kind of a desperation that we've never had, and it's really important. You know, it's really important that he win, and it's really important. I mean, we have to get Trump out of office. There's no other way that we're going to survive. I think. We just have to. I think that this is just, it's just absolutely necessary. I don't think that, I don't think yeah, we can do this. We can't, we can't have him there anymore. We just can't. We can't. We, can't. we really can't. It's, uh, it's not, <laughs> it's, it's, it's beyond, it's, it's beyond, it's beyond at this point. Um, but you know, my fear is, I, I, you know, like I said earlier, even if he, even if Biden wins, I don't see how this ends well under any circumstance in the sense that no matter what, Trump's definitely going to try to stay in office and, or at least try to, yeah. you know, or at the best case scenario is he he leaves, but he says the election was rigged. It was illegitimate, but I'm leaving because, 
you know, uh, I don't know. I, I just, the, that's the best case scenario that we, that he did, leaves. There's no proper transition. He basically just says, go, you know, go F yourself. And, you know, Biden comes in, but it's, he's left with a big mess. And, uh, you know, for sure, they're going to try to leave Biden with as big of a mess as possible, you know? Yeah. So. Well, we'll, you know, we'll see what happens, <laughs> but we'll be there. We'll be there to help clean it up. Yep. And um, will you let us know where can we find everything that you're about, what you're doing, where we can read your articles and your stuff on Insta? Where can people find you online? Thank you. Yeah, my website's jamesdukemason.com. And that includes all my social media links. I mean, I'm also on Instagram.com slash jamesdukemason, Twitter.com slash jamesdukemason, Facebook.com. So, so it's pretty straightforward. But yeah, um, people can... Go to my website and see my articles and my videos or interviews and all that kind of stuff. So Wonderful. Well, thank you so much. And I'm so glad that I got to talk to you today. True honor, really. I'm so grateful and excited to be here. So thank you. Thank you. Never miss an episode of The Margaret Cho. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. The Margaret Cho is an Erios production with editing by Melissa Stetton and original score by Garrison Taking Star. Over my dreams, waking me out of my sleep. I think I'm coming apart. Coming out of the dark, coming out of the dark, coming out of the dark. Yeah, I'm coming out of the dark. Original. Powered by ACAST. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.